Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver, and this is, in case you missed it, School Colors. Last year, Brooklyn Deep released an eight-part documentary podcast series called School Colors. It's about race, class, and power in American cities, and it's told through stories about the struggle for self-determination. It spans 150 years and focuses on the schools of central Brooklyn, particularly in Bedford-Stuyvesant, or Bed-Stuy. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by the co-hosts and co-producers. Guys, why don't I let you introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Max Friedman, and I'm the co-producer and co-host of School Colors. And I'm Mark Winston Griffith, and I'm the co-host and co-producer of School Colors as well, as well as the executive editor of Brooklyn Deep. Yeah, can you tell me a bit about what Brooklyn Deep is? Brooklyn Deep is the digital journalism arm of an organization called the Brooklyn Movement Center. So the Brooklyn Movement Center is a community organizing group, black-led, that works in central Brooklyn, builds power for people who live and work here across a lot of different issue areas. And the mission of Brooklyn Deep is to be a storytelling and citizen journalism platform that sort of deconstructs and looks at issues of community change and gentrification. Why Brooklyn? Why Bed-Stuy? Why tell the story uh, of Bed-Stuy around education? Education has always been a prism through which people have looked at and expressed self-determination in central Brooklyn. So, you know, central Brooklyn is the largest concentration of black folks in in the country, urban-wise. And so what happens in central Brooklyn, I won't say it's a stand-in for everywhere else, but it's a good indication of what black folks in urban areas are are going through. For me, it was really personal um, because I live here. When I came to live here as a gentrifier, I wanted to try to, it's a cliche, but to try to give something back to this community instead of just taking from it. But I also... This isn't specific to Bed-Stuy, but to northern cities like New York and like Brooklyn. When we think about education as a civil rights issue, we think about the South. And it's certainly right. not an original thought for me to say we can't just look at the South. <laughs> so many people, Nicole Hannah-Jones and many others, have been saying, like, you know, we need to look not just in the present, but historically the struggles around education in the North, the Boston busing crisis, community control in Ocean Hill-Brownsville. There are various flashpoints around education in the North. It's really important to tell that story in places like this. I just want to add that on a personal note, I think it's important to kind of look backwards in my life in the sense that my parents and Aunts and uncles were all teachers uh, or worked in the public school system in one way or another. Mm. And so that's also been a part of my personal history. I've always had a high value on education, not just in terms of my own personal life, but just politically. I've always felt as though education was an important part around the conversation of, you know, social justice and, and black liberation. So what led you to create the School Colors podcast? We started with a question, which was very much in the present tense, what is happening to enrollment in the schools of Community School District 16, which is here in the eastern half of Bedford-Stuyvesant, because we found right off the bat that the enrollment was declining dramatically. At that point, just over half of students who live in the district were actually going to school in the district. It seemed really dramatic, especially if you looked back in history and saw that 50 years ago, students in this community were going to school in shifts because the sc- this, they didn't have enough seats. There were so many of them. There were so many kids. So we started off with that question and it just was a, you know, we, we pulled a thread and it was a question without an easy answer. It's this and this and this and also you can't understand this, this or this without looking at what 
was happening 100 years ago, 50 years ago. It's all connected. There's a lot of continuity here. The reason it was important to highlight that continuity is because part of the way that gentrification works, and gentrification is a big part of the story that we're telling about Bed-Stuy in the present, gentrification thrives on the idea that there's nothing here mm. or that what is here doesn't have value. Mm -hmm. And so telling the story of, of, of the struggle and the continuity is a really important intervention into this narrative about whether or not there is something here that has value. Right. As opposed to just something here that needs replacing or even that needs saving. All right. So let's talk about episode seven, New Kids on the Block. And this episode really focuses on the Bedsty Parents Committee. Well, maybe, maybe tell us just briefly what who the Bedsty Parents Committee is and how it came to be. So the Bedsty Parents Committee is a group of families who are mostly new to Bedsty, um, mostly but not all white, and pretty much all middle class, upper middle class. Yeah, and I would I would say that. The basic premise behind the Bedsty Parents Committee is that, you know, we are parents, we're somewhat new to this neighborhood, and we recognize that a lot of, of our peers send their children outside of the district. And so we want to live in a neighborhood where we can send our own children to the schools here. And so let's let's prepare the ground for that. Right. So they're a new group of parents. They've recently arrived, led by Shyla, who we will come to know well through this episode. They're looking to get involved and maybe bringing with them a sense that the schools in the neighborhood are failing. Uh, and they have that sense, you know, because our system says our schools are broken. And they're also coming in without a, an understanding of the history that you guys so artfully lay out in the first episodes of School Colors. Yeah. I mean, in, in their defense, I think actually... Shyla, who started the group, she started hearing from parents that they just weren't sending their kids to local schools. And so she really just wanted to start by finding out what's, what was actually going on in the local schools just by going in there and encouraging other parents to go in there too. Yeah, and, and, and I will also say that when you've been working inside the system for such a long time, there is a certain level of submission that I think occurs. And I think that mm. as a new group of parents, they came in not feeling at all obligated to bow down to that system. And so they wanted to make sure that, that they were going to be agents of progress and change in their children's lives. And I wouldn't necessarily say that I feel like these parents were too empowered. Everybody should feel the way that they do. Maybe disproportionately empowered because of the way the system works. Right. And in fact, I've always felt like more parent organizing needed to occur. And, you know, I just felt it was ironic that this was happening among newly arrived, mostly middle class, mostly white parents. But this is something that we encourage among everybody in not only District 16, but just parents in general. Right. So you have this activated and empowered group of parents, which is potentially a good thing. But they're maybe heard by the system in ways that the existing activist parents have not been. Mm -hmm. And so there's some tension there. And the other challenge that seems to come up is something we talk at Integrated Schools a lot uh, is this idea of rallying. You know, if I can just get enough people to come with me to the school, then it'll be, quote, okay. Or then we can make it better or we can fix the school. And it's a, it's a potentially complicated topic because particularly as we see gentrification moving through more and more cities, we see more areas with declining enrollment. And so, you know, on the one hand, butts and seats is what keeps a school alive. But what can be ostensibly good intentions often end up with quite bad impacts and Episode 7 really captures both the good intentions 
and the the negative impacts quite well. Because I think that Shyla comes across as very relatable and I find myself being like, oh, I can totally see how I could end up in the exact same spot mm-hmm. that she got herself into. There is a a historic sense that I think that is pervasive that in many ways sort of prompted us to do the podcast in the first place and why there are four episodes worth of history because, you know, it's not just gentrifiers. I think newcomers in general tend to come in with a sense of their own power and a lack of curiosity about what has gone on before. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. only just devaluing it, but just a failure to sort of do your due diligence to get an understanding of what's the context you're coming into. Um, And so I think all of that is is operating in the background here. A sort of basic lack of respect for history, maybe. And, And I think that sort of the lack of patience and tolerance, if you will, that a lot of people have for gentrifiers is... It's almost willful sometimes, that lack of history and lack of, of curiosity and this like sort of assumption that's baked in that whatever happened before is worth papering over and, and fixing and is not good enough. And so hmm. it's incumbent upon us to get things right because this is a neighborhood that clearly is, has been dysfunctional. And so we're going to come in and we're going we're gonna to fix it. Sounds like we've got gentrification, saviorism, school integration, all packed in here. But maybe we should take a listen to hear what actually happens. So when I moved here, I was pregnant. Shyla Dewan moved to Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn in 2012. And I talked to everyone I met on the bus, on the subway, eventually on the playground about the schools here. Where do you send your kid to school? Where does your kid go to school? And Shyla is a journalist who covers criminal justice. So she approached the schools in Bed-Stuy like the investigative reporter that she is. I was trying to educate myself about this huge system of options that we have in the city, and no one I talked to ever answered that they sent their kid to school in this neighborhood. Instead, they were taking advantage of this huge system of options, going to public schools in other districts, charter schools, or even private schools. Middle-class parents don't choose to go to neighborhood schools, and I think the reasons for black middle-class parents versus white middle-class parents are very different. Nicole Hannah-Jones writes about race and schools for the New York Times Magazine. She also happens to live in Bed-Stuy. For most black middle class parents, they're just one foot into the middle class themselves, and this is not something that they can risk. And for most white middle class parents, I think that they have a lot of fear about putting their kids in school, poor black kids. And when middle class families do choose local schools, they cluster. They don't make rational choices based on like programming. They like basically do what their friends say and we have segregated, you know, friend groups, and, and so... Matt Gonzalez is the director of the Integration and Innovation Initiative at the NYU Metro Center. Um, when you have a neighborhood gentrifying, you know, folks are going to send their kids to a school. It's going to become this kind of enclave or boutique school in a kind of sea of Black and Latino students. Which is exactly the kind of thing that Shyla Dewan and the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee would be accused of doing, whether or not that was their intent. Shyla is actually not white, although she's well aware that she presents as white to most people. Her mother is white and her father is from India. She grew up in Houston, Texas. You know, I went into this n- with no organizing experience whatsoever. And I, I just followed my instincts. 
And so I was talking to all the parents that I knew of kids of a similar age. And then I started accosting strangers who I didn't know if I saw somebody with a stroller, basically like they were gonna get a flyer from me or I was gonna tell them about our next event. Virginia Poundstone was one of those strangers. She's a very clear memory of being with her son in Fulton Park in bed for a toddler's playing soccer thing when... Shiloh fully like ran up to me and was like, hi, I'm Shyla. I want you to come to this meeting. And I was like, whoa, lady, <laughs> who are you? Jeez, Louise, all right. I thought everyone with a small child is gonna be interested in this. Everybody wants to walk two blocks to school, right? She put up flyers in laundromats and on telephone poles. You know, in the uh, fancy cafes and the not fancy cafes and... She used Yahoo groups and built an email list. And I mean, this was part of the problem, right, is that I was really good at talking to my own cohort. People were really excited. I do remember getting an email from Shyla being like, okay, we need to name ourselves. Does anybody have any ideas? What should we call this? And then the next email I got was a logo with the name. When she first heard about this new group, Felicia Alexander from the Community Education Council for District 16 was not pleased. Like, you could have called yourself anything else, but it really galls me that you decided that you're the bedstock, aren't really like, you did not, you're not born and raised here. You're not do or die. You just came here because it's the popular destination. I have lived in New York City since 1995, since I graduated high school. I am no dummy. I am white, but I am no dummy. I know what Bed-Stuy means. And Bed-Stuy is a black neighborhood. You know, to call it Bed-Stuy Parents Committee when the vision of the entire organization is about diversifying schools, that's not what Bed-Stuy is. And so I was always very self-conscious about it, but I couldn't come up with a better solution. I couldn't come up with a thing. This is a historical black community. Naquan McLean is the president of the Community Education Council, the official representative body for parents in the district. We are very tied to our beliefs, our religions. So I use as a metaphor, what they've done is they went into a church started a choir, and did not speak to the pastor. <laughs> there was already a parent group in the community. So if it's not clear, the parent group he's talking about is the CEC, which makes him the pastor, I think. In some ways, this is the original sin for Naquan. They did speak to the pastor, but not until after they had already started their own group. But at the first meeting of what eventually became the bed Parents Committee, they really didn't know what the group was going to be about. Should they start a new school, join an existing school? Pretty quickly, they realized they needed to start by getting more information. The bed Parents Committee held their first official gathering in June 2015. In November, they organized their first big public event, at which they invited Naquan and the superintendent at the time to speak. Shyla says they were just trying to figure out how the system worked what the school's needs were, and how they could help to meet those needs. But they did not make a very positive first impression. Got a little hostile because it was like a attack us situation, but we, we held our ground and we said what we needed to say. Attack when, when people in the audience were, were very critical. Very of, critical, very, you know, of, of the system and the district. And, and so we sat down with Shyla and another parent from the group a couple of weeks later to set them straight. At that time is when I told them about the whole church and the choir, and I said the best way to deal with this community is not to come with the attitude that you're coming to fix something. Because there's been people here fighting for years to make sure we have quality education, to make sure that 
the DOE is providing everything that they're supposed to for our children. So when you come with that attitude, you're, you're going to get resistance. Me as a parent and a parent leader, I don't know you. Why am I going to listen to you? I mean, these the schools don't have a healthy level of enrollment. You don't have money if you don't have kids. So Shyla felt like she and Naquan had the same mission, to get families to at least consider District 16. I mean, Naquan told me when we first met, you know, the most important thing you can do is send your kid to a District 16 school. And that was our, our biggest push, you know, educating people about why a test score is not the be-all and end-all measure of a school and telling people you've got to go in the school and see how it feels to you. So far, so good. Except that some of the schools in District 16 were not at all prepared to receive these parents. Some of them wouldn't respond to emails. One parent told me that she called up a school and asked if they offered school tours. Whoever picked up the phone straight up said no and hung up. So in addition to organizing parents, the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee tried to work directly with the schools to help them market themselves and organize school tours. But there's also a very big sense of, we can do this ourselves, thanks a lot. And sometimes it's like, people don't want what you have to offer, which you may think is so great. Virginia thinks she understands why a parent like her wouldn't necessarily be welcomed by a longtime principal in this district. You're getting families that are working too hard and don't have any time or don't have an education themselves. I mean, I have a hard time understanding and deciphering the DOE, and I have a graduate degree. They set up this system that is impossible to navigate if you don't have a lot of time and a lot of resources to figure it out. And so if a principal sees someone like me walk in who has obviously already begun to figure it out and I don't even have a child in school, that is like, no thank you, I don't wanna deal with you. I know you're gonna be like a lot of, you're gonna be a lot of work. Like Virginia, most of the parents involved with the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee had children who were still too young for school. So word on the street was that the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee was exclusive, only for some Bed-Stuy parents, not all. There was no policy. All, all of our meetings were public. But we just sort of said, like, hey, this is particularly aimed at you if you're the parent of a kid who's age zero to four, meaning you wouldn't be placed in a school yet. And Shyla says that messaging was strategic. Their goal was to encourage families who would otherwise not choose local schools to choose local schools. So if they spent their limited energy and resources trying to talk to parents of older kids, those parents would already have gone outside the district. Too little, too late. That doesn't hold water with Nick Juan. So they want to make sure the schools are good or the schools are right before their kids get there? No, we want to make sure the schools are right and the schools are good because the students are there already. We're going to do what's best for all students, not just yours, not just Johnny, not just Samantha, but Shaquana that lives in Brevoid. Mm -hmm. We're going to make sure she has a good education too. One of the most polarizing decisions the bed Parents Committee ever made was to choose two focus schools, two schools where the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee would encourage their members to enroll and that the organization would then raise money for. There was a process of natural selection. Bed-Stuy Parents Committee parents toured every school in the district, and there were two schools that rose to the top, Brighter Choice Community School and PS309. But Virginia had a bad feeling about this from the very beginning. Originally, it was the discussion was like, Okay, let's announce that we're adopting these schools. And I was like, yo, no, no, we are not adopting anybody. And then the term became focus schools. And then I was like, but why do we have to announce that? A different way would have been to never announce that and just enroll. 
you know, whatever, I lost. Even as the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee kept on trying to get people hyped up about the district, they even made t-shirts that said, I heart D16. The local rumor mill went into overdrive. The most persistent and destructive rumor has been that parents from the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee requested an all-white kindergarten class. If you even wanted that, which we don't, why would you go to a 97% people of color school district and ask for that? Like, it just doesn't make sense, right? But that's one of the, that's one of the huge rumors that people, people actually seem to think that it might be true. So Shia was pretty definitive that they never asked for an all-white kindergarten class. And that does seem, you know, a, a bit of an odd request given the demographics. Where did that rumor come from? And, and also, why does that seem like something that would be believable? Well, in one of the Bedside Parents Committee focus schools, PS309, the first year, I think there were six families and five of them got placed in the same kindergarten class just by accident. Apparently, just, you know, they were sorting names and a hat, whatever. Five out of the six ended up in the same kindergarten class. And actually, apparently, those parents were very upset. They understood the optics of it, and they went to try to do something about it. But they also, those five were in a class with the kindergarten teacher that everybody wanted. Mm. (laughs) So the principal says, well, you can switch to the other one if you want. And they were not actually willing to give up that teacher. So there you go. We haven't been able to kind of get anybody on record, but... It seems clear that the this story was propagated by people who are in positions of power and influence in the district. Mm. And so it seems clear to me that whether or not it's true, people in the district who had the opportunity to shut it down sometimes did the opposite. Yeah, and, and we know how the game of telephone works, right? I mean, all it, it, it doesn't even require someone to even say anything. All it requires is the perception, something interpreted a certain way and someone saying something to someone else – And then that gets absorbed as fact, you know, and it makes its way around. And by the time it's made its way around, you have no idea where it started or how much of it is based in fact. So I I, in in an environment where there's so much mistrust already, I think it's like putting, you know, a match into straw. It's just going to it's just going to go up really quickly. It makes a good story for sure. And so even if it just starts out as like. You know, I I don't want to be the one white kid who's who's all alone. Mm-hmm. That becomes oh, what's well, then you want all the white kids to be in one class, and now pretty soon it's like well, you want the whole class to be white, then you want the whole school to be white, and what you're actually doing here is taking over, and it's a, mm-hmm. a slippery slope. Yeah, it confirms all your worst suspicions. The the Bedside Parents Committee has angered people. They've got rumors swirling, and they haven't even shown up in the schools yet. Right, so the episode picks back up at one of the two focus schools, which is PS309. When the first cohort of six families from the Bedside Parents Committee arrived at PS309 in the fall of 2016, the president of the PTA was Natasha Seaton, known by everybody in the school as Miss Tasha. I lived in Brooklyn all my life. I was born here in um, Bedside, but I moved to Staten Island like six years ago. I didn't feel comfortable in the schools in Staten Island. Actually, stepping in there, talking to a principal, I always felt at home in Brooklyn. So I was just like, you know what, I'm going to keep her in school in Brooklyn, but for the cheaper living, I'll be in Staten Island. It's a two-hour commute, each way, every day. Should we get up at 5 o'clock? We're on the 640 ferry, and we're here at 730. But she loves 309, 
and she loves Brooklyn. It's something about Brooklyn that just brings out just the life in me. Where when I when I step off the train, I'm smiling. Her daughter loves Brooklyn too. You know, just her being her with her friends, dancing outside. You know, not being looked at all strangely. You could be in the park and you can just like have a good time. So that's why I like Bed Stuy. When the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee rolled into town, Natasha had been PTA president for three years. She basically spent all her time in the building. If they needed help in the cafeteria, I was there. If they needed help in the classrooms putting up a bulletin board, I was there. She was a chaperone on field trips. She made sure every kid in the school had some kind of birthday treat. Not a lot of parents wanted to join the PTA. I knew the parents at that school. I knew that parents counted on me to, you know, let them know what's going on. Um, Eventually, she even got a job in the building working for the nonprofit that runs the after-school program. Long days. I was there from 8 o'clock in the morning till like 7 o'clock at night. The principal, Tanya Bryant, quickly came to appreciate how hard Natasha was working and how much trust she had from other parents. She was the mayor of the community, even when it came to me. I remember my first two months here, if something would happen and parents would come up here and they would be upset, no, 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 Ms. Bryant loves the children. I'm sure that's not what happened. Talk to her. Let me figure it out. She was the mayor. Gotta be careful with the mayor. <laughs> you, you know? One of the new parents at PS309 was the founder of the bed Parents Committee, Shyla Dewan. We really didn't want it to be this kind of like, we're gonna pick one school and go in there and take it over. And we, we were really trying to avoid that dynamic. We did not want that. Right away, there was conflict between the new parents in the school and Miss Tasha. It's not the color. I love white people. Like, I love them. You know, it's the way that they came in trying to, like, regulate everything. You know, I want this program for this. Shyla and the other new parents at 309 put their social capital to work. They held a book sale. They staged a mock election on election day. They even arranged for subsidized music lessons. But nothing came easy. Every minor change was an issue. For example, how about the PTA sell flowers? Oh, we don't sell flowers here. Some people wanted to have committees. And I remember at one point the PTA president said, we can't have committees. But I think it became almost like territorial, right? We were here. My kid has been here since preschool, and we just don't do it that way. The district person showed up at a PTA meeting and said, you can have committees. <laughs> like, you can't just not have committees. If people want to have committees, they can. So, but somebody must have called the district people and said, she's not letting us have committees. Yeah, that was probably me. That was probably okay. me who did that, yeah. Newer families, though, had done their homework. It behooved them to research and find out how do public schools run. Oh, let me read the chancellor's regulation. So they would come in and say, but there's nothing wrong with selling flowers according to chancellor's regulation, you know, stating policy. And I think the older families like, don't come in here stating that policy. Like, everything was like a challenge. I'm like the little, like, rule stickler who will be like, you can't do that because the rules say blah, 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 you know. Like, let me call in the referee. And I think it's hard. It was harder for some of the other parents because they no longer could afford to live in the community, right? So now I've moved out, I'm in a shelter, or I have temporary housing, or I've been forced to move to other areas of the city, and I'm a native of Bed-Stuy, and now here you are, you're living in Bed-Stuy, and now you want owner, you took my home, and now you want my school too? Even these little things, starting committees, selling flowers, were signals to Natasha that these new parents were trying to turn PS309 into a replica of one of the most highly prized schools in Brownstone, Brooklyn, PS11. Still a mostly black school, but with a growing white minority. You want it to be PS11? Yes, PS11 can bring in $25,000. I know where their location is. Yes, I know the parents. 
remember where our school is. Remember what parents are we're dealing with and the money that they have in their pocket. Relax. You're trying to, quote unquote, shit on them. And forget about the parents that have been in the school that are struggling. You think that everybody's rich? No. What do you, when you, you say like they wanted to turn it into something else, if you had to, what did they want to turn it into? For me to talk real, they're white school. They didn't want no black kids in there. Even Shyla could see that what was happening had a racial dimension. She says she tried to be proactive about addressing it. People didn't want to have a conversation about race. So not at that hmm. point in time, right. you know. And, and it may be like, why should we have a conversation about it? You go have a conversation about it. You know, it's, it's just really hard to know what the right forum is. She kept wanting to push the issue. Let's talk about this race and gentrification and how it's affecting. And I remember saying to her, but you're not ready for the truth, you know? And then, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, they work. They have their nice, prestigious jobs. Nobody's mad at that. I'm just here in the school. You know, so I don't feel like you're talking to me any kind of way like, oh, like you're higher than me. You know, I chose to do what I wanted to do. Yes, I'm smart. I graduated from your college. I have my bachelor's and so forth. I did psychology and social work. I just don't want to do that. I want to be in a school. To hear Natasha tell it, the microaggressions were constant. How y'all come off like this? Like, I thought we were all parents. And I didn't want it to be like... You're angry black person. Like, you don't know how to be in a setting. I shouldn't have to, like, get out of my character and be like, oh, like, this Brooklyn chick is, like, getting all, like, crazy. Like, no, I can talk just like you all. They just did stuff differently. I remember there was a lot of frustration trying to deal with Natasha because you'd think you had agreed on some way of proceeding with something, and then the next time you saw her, the story would be different. We would say things like, well, you're, you want to have a Thanksgiving raffle. Do you need parents to come at a certain time and help sell tickets to the raffle? Like, what do you need? And it would just be like, no, 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 we don't, we don't need anything. Thanks. So, oh, well, if you're mad at me, oh, well. This is volunteer, <laughs> so we don't get paid for this. So you know what? Accept it and work with me. Or I know that you're not for the kids. All right, so tensions are rising. You've got Shyla bringing this desire to help and this tendency to focus on the rules and uh, feeling like she should be asserting herself and advocating on behalf of the other parents that she's bringing with her. And then I guess there were PTA elections. Yeah, so Natasha had been the PTA president for two or three years at that point. And on paper, there were supposed to be term limits, but they, you know, as with some of these other rules, it hadn't necessarily been enforced like that. Natasha says that basically the new parents in the school conspired to make it so that these rules uh, would be followed and Natasha couldn't run for PTA president again. So there were elections and uh, they got a little... He did. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the idea was that Natasha felt, and I think this has been supported by other things too, that the the new parents didn't want her in there. And so they had to go to a technicality, in essence, to nudge her out. And then so what Natasha did, or at least how people perceived it, is that she found some people who were riding and dying with her, who were part of her camp, so to speak, and they ran for co-presidents. And there were a couple of other candidates, Liz and Anika, one white, one black, who were recruited to run 
as well. And those two, you know, in talking to them, they said that they just had no idea all this political intrigue and background was was operating. And they came into it rather naively and said, sure, we, we'll, we'll be down to be a part of this. And they got caught in the crosshairs of this racial feud, so to speak. Were they part of the, the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee? No, they weren't. Uh, Liz knew Shyla socially, but she she put it a committed non-participant in the activities of the Bedside Parents Committee. Right, it was right. like it was not it was not her scene. And Bedside Parents Committee, I think, to some extent, just became shorthand for people who were white or people who were middle class or people who were newcomers, and so it it all got sort of conflated and and painted with the same brush. Mm. So uh, the PTA meetings maybe had five or six people at them on a on a monthly basis, weekly or monthly basis. When right. these elections came around with this this rivalry between the two co-presidents on the one side and the two on the other, there were 40 or 50 people at those elections. Wow. They'd never seen, at least I don't think in recent times, anything like this. And so I think everyone recognized that the stakes were really high. And that's what made this election that much more explosive. Right. So the PTA vote happens. You've got 40 or 50 people showing up. But you also, I guess, had the current CEC president who we've heard from already, Naquan McLean there. Yeah, there had been a lot of drama leading up to the PTA elections and uh, they had to rewrite the bylaws. They could have co-presidents and, and Naquan had gotten involved in that stuff. So he, 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 as he does a lot, he showed up at the PTA elections to kind of administer oversee. It was basically really like the whites against the black. You have two mm. rows of white people. You have two rows of black people and the black people sitting in the back and the white people sitting in the front. All kinds of crazy nonsense. Principal Tanya Bryant. Many of the families here were not actively involved and they were okay. They trust the school to kind of do what they do. If you need me, call me, I'll help you. But I trust the school to kind of do what it does. But when it was time for a PTA election, some of these people would come out of the woodworks. You've never seen so many people in your life, you know, just to make sure that certain people didn't get elected. Or So it's a very interesting dynamic. You know, I don't necessarily want it, but I don't want you to have it either because you're just getting here. I may not have all the time in the world um, to dedicate to the school, but I'm here too and I still want my voice heard. And I'm afraid that if you get the position, um, that my voice, I'm not going to be represented here. So, The new parents, Anika Greenwich and Liz DePippo, won by one vote. Here's Liz. It did not feel good, but at the end, the room empties and who's there but us yeah. and the other two women who ran against us. And it was like... They were so nice, and they both were like, we are here for you. We want to help you. So the real problem was not the parents. It became clear after we won that uh, we would not be supported by the school. But whatever happened next, Shyla Dewan wouldn't be around to see it. Over the summer, she made a difficult decision. So PS56 is in District 13, oh. and my kid just got into a program that is not offered um, in, for kindergartners in District 16. So that was a big discussion in my family, and um, I can imagine. which I lost. <laughs> and um, but he's going to the closest place to our neighborhood that offers it. So, what's the program? Gifted and talented. But just because Shyla had left didn't mean things would go smoothly at PS three hundred nine the following year. For one thing, Natasha Seaton was still on the PTA as the secretary. So it's just like, oh, this work that I've done. No, I'm not going without a fight. All the hostility from the year before 
was now on me. Like, I was representative of that new white group of parents, and so it was like this relationship was irreparably damaged, and I was now the new spokesperson for that relationship. The hostility was particularly jarring for Anika as a black woman born and raised in Bed-Stuy. I felt like I was caught in the middle. I felt like this is basically a predominantly black school. And because I was more inviting and welcoming, and I actually became friends with one of the new parents. Who was white. Who was white. That they were like, oh, you know, like, we don't like her. We're not going to like her either. Personally, my interactions with the teachers were mostly very, very good. Totally fine. The office staff, horrible. Janitorial staff, horrible. Security team, horrible. They interfered with Liz and Anika in all sorts of petty ways. Oh, here you have to file for every permit, for every PTA meeting you're going to have for the rest of the school year. Awesome. That'll secure us a spot every month. And then, oh, no, 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 no. None of those permits that you filed are meaningful or valid. We couldn't do anything. We're absolutely paralyzed. Get door locked. Get oh, door locked. you can't get into the PTA room. Yeah. Then, Can we get a key? Can we get a key? Oh, in October, here's the key. Stuff like this. So it was like every single, you know, one giant leap the was the... The supposed to be closed when we're not there and we come, the door is already open. Yeah. We're like, what? who's in here? Liz and Anika say they felt like they were being bullied by Natasha and her allies. But what was even more demoralizing was that they felt like the school leadership didn't have their back. The last straw was in November when a rumor started to circulate that Liz had filed an official complaint against Ms. Bryant with the DOE. Anika heard it first. I called her immediately, and I was like, this this rumor around that you filed a complaint about the principal and da-da-da-da, and she's like, what? And you said, I'm assuming this is not true. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's not true. I didn't file a complaint with the superintendent against yeah. anybody. I would, that's insane. She was almost near tears. She was like, you know what, I'm done. She was like, I tried. I'm done. They didn't show up to the next PTA meeting in December. And then we both pulled our kids out of the school Mm -hmm. in January. And we just, like, didn't show up. And I never told anybody at the school. I just just left. (laughs) I just could, like, yeah. Liz says it felt like a really extreme decision. But it also felt like... Everyone hates me here. Like, I'm still his mom. How can I send my kid to a school where he's around these people so many hours a day and it's people are going out of their way to start rumors about me that I'm like doing this stuff to mess with the principal like this is a bad scene I gotta get out of here with every stage of change comes conflict and a lot of the newer families that changed didn't come quickly enough for them um, and the conflict became unnecessary to them because they felt like they had other options I see some of the parents now and it's just like oh hey yeah hey but we could have had a good time at 309 and you destroyed it and for you to all just leave and then leave the kids like, y'all left PTA. Crap. Like, y'all fought for the PTA and none of y'all are on the PTA. So what was all this fight for? That's a good question. What was all this fight for? In the three months that you were PTA co-presidents, <laughs> how much money so did you stress. raise? Um, how much money did we raise? 400 bucks, I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah. And, and what was it spent on? Oh, who knows? Even after Liz and Anika and Shiloh were gone, there were still white parents in the school, some of them affiliated with the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee. And Natasha felt like they were targeting her, like she was treated like a problem. So it was like, for my whole fifth grade, I was stuck in the PTA room. I couldn't be with the kids. I couldn't help out. Couldn't do nothing. It was like I was watched on, don't let me come into the cafeteria to say good morning to the kids, because they'd be watching me from the, um, the windows in the yard. 
Is she in there? I couldn't take the kids down the hallway anymore because they didn't want me touching their white kids. My brown hands on their white kids. Oh, this is racism? Damn. I never, never, living in Staten Island, still, never, never had to feel the way I felt for them last two years. Maybe inevitably, there was a conflation between what happened at PS309 and the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee as an organization. The Bed-Stuy Parents Committee didn't control any PTA in the district, and the actions of individual parents didn't necessarily reflect the mission and the values of the group. But their reputation was badly damaged. I mean, our confidence was just, mm-hmm. just obliterated. Shyla tried to clear the air with the CEC and other local stakeholders, but it was always like one step forward, two steps back. As I understand it, the CEC told the superintendent not to have any conversations with us. Wow. And then the CEC also told us that they would not have any conversations with us. Every time that we have opened our arms or tried to work with them, they have tried to do something undercutting or go behind our backs. and mm-hmm. We don't have time to waste like that. It, it may be that, you know, like we just didn't CC the right person on the right email. There's no book that tells you who to CC. But when we make that mistake of not CCing the right person, you know, it just is a complete conflagration-sized disaster. Shyla continued to believe that the bed Parents Committee was doing really positive things, but they were clearly not being seen that way. And for Shyla, it felt very personal. It's, uh, it's been really hard. I mean, I've, I've gone to public meetings where people will not say hello to me. People who you know? Yeah, people who I've met, yeah. People who I say hello to <laughs> will not say hello to me. It's like I'm completely toxic in my own community and neighborhood. I am a pariah, and um, you know I resigned from the Bedside Parents Committee, not because of that, not because I didn't want to fight the hard fight, but for other reasons. And um, I also just felt like, gosh, maybe this will help. Like, maybe it will help the group to move on into a more productive relationship. After Shyla resigned in the summer of 2017. Virginia Poundstone and Mika Vanderpool took over as co-presidents of the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee and decided to put things on pause. Here's Virginia. I think I had a gut feeling as a human being about what the, the behaviors of my fellow white people being really negative. But I didn't have the skills to really articulate exactly why what they were doing was bad and why the way they were speaking was bad, the way they were behaving was bad, their internalized superiority. You know, like I didn't have those words at that time. I have those words now, but I didn't at the time. And that was absolutely playing out there. So they brought in anti-bias consultants. They reassessed their mission, built a five-year plan. But it hasn't been easy. It's difficult for us to continue organizing parents because we are constantly managing new drama to thwart us. We are a volunteer organization. No one has paid for this work. We all have other jobs that we're having to do. But because this whole neighborhood is under attack, because of gentrification, because of large, systemic, citywide, nationwide policies, the level of attack is that everyone is on 10. 
And to do the work, we need to be on like four in terms of our emotional maxed outness. And when we're all at 10, no one can move forward. And I am not harmed by that. And that's where it gets heartbreaking. You say you're not harmed by it, but it, you, you are obviously affected. So when you say you're not harmed by it and other people are, what do you mean by that? I have options. I am white, I am middle class, I can figure it out. So my last question is, so this door over there, mm -hmm. it leads to the past. Oh yeah, cool. <laughs> um, and if you walk through it, it takes you back right before you started Bed-Stuy Parents Committee. Mm -hmm. um, would you still start Bed-Stuy Parents Committee? And if so, what would you do differently? It's such a good question because I've spent so many nights in tears, mm. just crying over this. Like, how did I get to a place where um, I was trying to help and I became public enemy number one? How did this happen? What did I do wrong? What are the things that I said wrong? And I mean, one, one of my personality traits is just like, I can get up and keep going in a way that I think made me the right person to, to try it, but maybe not the right person to keep doing it. Like my force of personality, which is, you know, maybe partly privilege, was partly just personality. It was like good for starting something and good for galvanizing. And it, it was probably, well, it was evidently not good for building community relationships. So would I have done it if I knew what I know now? I mean, that's not the way the world works, right? I know. You know, you, you just do what you do because, because you don't know any better. <laughs> well, if you want to know what happens next to the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee, you'll have to tune in to the rest of the School Colors series. Uh, all eight episodes are awesome. You should definitely check them out. See, seems like there are, there are a few sort of themes that come out to me. I wonder what you guys think of this. One of them seems to be impact versus intent. That Shiloh intentionally showed up trying not to take over, but the impact, the way that she was perceived, the way that she came across in the community definitely felt like a takeover and colonization. I think that it's really hard to extricate these two from each other, there's impact and, and intent. Because I do think that no one or very few people actually go into something like that thinking of themselves as colonizers or wanting to be colonizers or wanting to be accused of being a colonizer. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, I think that we all do things unconsciously. And I think that, you know, the most insidious part of white supremacy is that it's not necessarily a ideology or philosophy that you follow. It's a way of being sometimes, it's a way of thinking that can be unconscious and really even go against what your stated principles and ideologies are. So yes, I think that people were generally quote unquote good intentioned, but I think that those intentions were inherently a little problematic. I will say that in the interviews that we did, I felt nothing but empathy for folks. I felt like they were good people. 
I felt like they had the intentions of their own children and of the district at heart. And, and so I don't come out of this like pointing fingers, but just right. sort of understanding this stuff is just really complicated. And you oftentimes carry baggage that you're not even aware of. I think it's easy to listen to this episode and go, wow, this is what happens when this kind of person goes and does this thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think actually maybe this is what happens when you get Shyla and Natasha. <laughs> right. When you get these two particular individuals. Well, let's be honest, though. I mean, Shyla without Natasha was still heading for a train wreck. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, yeah, right. And could, right. <laughs> One of the reasons we did the entire series is because we wanted to make sure that this conversation was more than one-dimensional. And as tempting as it is, it is, and as easy it is to sort of point to people like Shyla and say, they're the problem. Our intent was to add some more complexity to it without taking away any of her culpability or, or her, her agency or what, whatever she did. That's what made the story rich to us because it, it really painted a much more complicated story than, than the typical gentrification story. And people are more than their identities, right? right? Some of this is white or white presenting parents and black parents. Some of this is Shyla and Natasha. Right. I think what we really tried to do in this podcast was untease so many different things that just kind of get lumped together. So we're talking about the bureaucracy and the system, and you're talking about history. And all of this, you have people in their personalities, individuals, and it, it just makes for an unpredictable cocktail. I mean, there may be some common themes there, but I think if nothing else, that's what makes this all so human, that you understand that the individuals, as well as the systems, make a difference. Right. The system piece is that if Shiloh was not white presenting and, and middle class, she maybe doesn't have the same ability to drive change in the school system because of the way the school system responds to people with privilege. Right. And some of people's anger is, I wouldn't say anger that's misplaced. When the system stands up and pays attention to somebody like Shyla, the system is showing its ass, right? Right. And that, that's not Shyla's fault. Right. But it, it's easy to then be mad at her because of it. Right. Is there something inevitable about this conflict or, or is there a way that it could work better? Is, you know, is there some lesson to be learned here about how to try to do this better? That is, I think, the reaction that most people have. It's like, okay, now that we have this podcast, how can we use this to do things in a little different way than we've done it in the past? And I'm not sure there's any nice, neat solution or game plan that you can extract from it. But uh, I do think it just raises people's self-awareness in a way that it did not exist before. And, I, you know, we made this because we believed that it might be easier for people, instead of asking people to come together to just talk about race and diversity and, you know, what's going on in Bed-Stuy, that it might be easier for people to come together to talk about a podcast. Right. You know, it can be easier to, instead of talking about what's happening in, in the room in front of you, it can be easier to talk about a story yeah. that touches on some of the same issues. And, and maybe that is at least some first step is talking. Is, is having those conversations because it feels to me like a lack of trust. And, you know, again, to go back to where do people's actual identities play a role? But I think that I have certainly seen white and privileged people 
assume that they should be trusted, assume that they should get the benefit of the doubt, and assume that their good intent should should mean enough. And I think the only answer to that, the only way through that is through building trust, through building relationships, through building community, through dialogue. And so maybe that's where, uh, you know, at least at least a first step, there's no how-to manual, but at least a first step is trying to have some of those conversations. You know, what people in the community have said to us is like, as, as Naquan put it, you don't need to start a choir. Just like come in and enroll your kid in the school. Right. And over time, if you start in pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, you build relationships, you build trust, you show, you know, you prove through your actions that you can be trusted and then then you work together. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the broadest takeaway is this like, know what you're getting into before you do it, you know? Particularly if you're new to any environment, whether it's a neighborhood, whether it's a school, a church, you know, leadership is great, but a, a leader who is going to be effective is someone who has a great deal of understanding and respect of the environment that they're working in. Mm. And I think that that was what was lacking in, in many of these situations. Well, but then again, they didn't have a podcast like School Colors unfolding all that history. I mean, I, 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 I'm kidding a little bit, but also not really. I mean, you, it's not necessarily clear how to get all this information about what's happened here before. If you want to talk about a sort of how-to guide, certainly one step is trying to build community and have conversations. And I think another step is learning the history of wherever you are and recognizing that whatever version of the history that is being presented, certainly in, in the media, but even you know, in your social circles, is potentially undervaluing the things that exist in that space. The Brooklyn Movement Center is, we're a black-led organization, but we have a lot of white members, what we call solidarity members. And the trainings that we do when people come in, it's just like, be conscious of the space that you're taking up, you know, step up and then step back and understand that you are not necessarily at the center. <laughs> and right. I think it's it's hard for people to grasp that. Particularly when we're thinking about our kids and right. there's so much societal pressure to get the quote-unquote best for your kid. That is, that's actually a really good point because one of the things I've learned as a parent is you can't take too many things for granted. You can't assume that this, things are going to play out and you've got to be aggressive in every way possible to get what you need for your child. And so I, I think to that extent, you're right. I think parents were operating the way that we actually encourage parents to do, which is just to go into it and and don't be discouraged and and. Don't get brushed back because there are going to be a lot of people telling you that you don't have any right to, to, to speak up. Is there a different obligation for parents with existing privilege, particularly white parents, when it comes to that? I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, I think so. Because what we're talking about here is, is social settings. And I think you can have an impact on your child's education without necessarily running the PTA, right? Or right telling the principal what to do all the time. So I, I think that we clearly want to do what's best for our children, but I think oftentimes we go far and beyond that and we're doing what's right for ourselves. Yeah, I think both the continuity, the sort of thread that you guys tie from the history 150 years ago all the way through today and and the impacts that that's having is so fascinating. But I also look at sort of like the the cyclical nature of it, that we find ourselves having many of the same conversations and fighting the same issues and and coming back around and around. Was there anything in this whole project, eight, eight parts, that gave you hope 
that left you feeling like maybe the cycle is slowly moving in a positive direction or or that we're that maybe this time around we'll find better answers to some of these questions when you talk about gentrification there's something about it the there's a sensibility around it that suggests that all of this is brand new and people have just arrived right. and there's a sort of almost Columbus kind of mentality to it. And as you listen to the podcast, there's fascination and, and, and some horror that many of the issues that we're dealing with today were dealt with back then. Uh, that is certainly true. But I think in listening to the history and living through some of this, I think what I experience is that there's, you know, it's two steps backwards and then three steps forward. That although we're having some of the same conversations, the conversation has been advanced a little bit. So, for instance, we talk about black-centered education, right? That's what you know, Afrocentric education is what people were talking about back then. And it's still being talked about a little bit today, but it's more in the context of culturally relevant education, which is broader. It's more inclusive of more people. And it's not just about whether black people are receiving a good education, but it's really rooted in this idea that people have to find themselves in whatever they're learning. So mm. I, I do find hope because, you know, there's always a big piece of the conversation that we've had many years before, but it, there are now innovations on it and I, I see progress and advancement in the conversation. I don't know if I agree with that assessment. I mean, you're right. It does seem cyclical. There are there are movements for liberation, and then there's a backlash. Um, it's not that I'm not hopeful. It's that I do expect that for every good thing that happens, for every positive, exciting movement, there will be retrenchment in the opposite direction. Right. What does give me hope, I think, is is a little bit more um, immediate, which is just in in the scope of of our working on this project. I feel like when we started three or four years ago, the discourse in New York City around school integration and diversity was pretty stale. Yeah. And I no longer think that that's true. I give them credit a lot because I think they deserve it. The, the something that these teenagers in New York City came up with called the five R's of real integration has really, yeah. I think, moved the conversation forward. Yeah. There's a lot of historical trauma around what has gone by the name integration and diversity in this country. And we, we can't, keep going around telling people that the only way for kids of color to have a good education is for there to be white kids there and that if you just put the right bodies together in the same room that everything will be hunky-dory. There's all this stuff that needs to happen and people right. need to feel like they have value regardless of whether or not there's magic white kids in the room. Right. Um, and I think the five R's is an important gesture in that direction. I agree with that and, you know, sort of doubling down on what I was saying before – I, I think of it particularly as a black person living in, in central Brooklyn. I look at the conditions that existed 50 years ago, and I think there have been material as well as political gains. And I say that not to necessarily give credit to, you know, the quote-unquote system, but to really recognize the effectiveness of black struggle during that time. Um, and, you know, the, the reaction will always be strong and happen with brute force. But I do think that because of what you've heard in school colors, there is some advancement that's, that's happening. And I, I feel I see it in my family. I don't ever want to lose sight of that as we recognize what's so screwed up about our condition. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe it sort of ties into the Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 project. But I think what you were saying is that, you know, the move from Afrocentric to culturally relevant is yet another way that the Black struggle for justice has never been solely for the benefit of Black people. That struggle has always brought along other people with it and made our country better for it. And I think I also see that as potentially hopeful as those issues generate more and more political power and and build on the maybe momentum is not exactly the right word but you know build on the continuing work of those communities that it that it does sort of lift all boats agreed well uh can't thank you guys enough for coming on the show for sharing this episode with us and for the whole series it's really fantastic I encourage everyone to go and take a listen to the whole thing start to finish thanks thank you Before we go, there are links to the Brooklyn Movement Center and Brooklyn Deep in the show notes. You can support them financially there or get more involved. You can also support us in this all-volunteer effort, patreon.com slash integrated schools. Join us for podcast conversations, happy hours, etc. You can also check us out on social media at integrated schools or send us an email, hello at integratedschools.org. We're going to go out with the credits from School Colors so you can hear about all the amazing people who worked on this great podcast. There's a link to the entire series in our show notes. And as always, I'm grateful to be in this with you as we try to know better and do better. See you next time. School Colors is written and produced by Mark Winston Griffith and Max Friedman. Edited by Max Friedman and Elise Blennerhassett. Engineering, mixing, and sound design by Elise Blennerhassett. Production support from Jaya Sundaresh and Alana Levinson. Music in this episode by Avery R. Young and Deaconboard, Chris Zabriskie, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Suzanne Cope and Tony Smith-Thompson. School Colors is a production of Brooklyn Deep, the citizen journalism project of the Brooklyn Movement Center, a Black-led community organizing group in Bed-Stuy. You can become a member or make a recurring donation at brooklynmovementcenter.org. School Colors is made possible by support from the Carnegie Corporation of New York and the NYU Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools. Visit schoolcolorspodcast.com for more information about this episode, including a full transcript. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at B-K-L-Y-N-D-E-E-P. You can help spread the word about School Colors by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, sharing on social media, or telling a friend. Till next time. Peace. But look, I, you know, there's a little boutique down the street from the Brooklyn Movement Center, and I was walking by a few weeks ago, and they had a throw pillow in the window that said "Do or Die" on it. So, that's <laughs> I do, do or die. die throw pillow. Used to be. Yes. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That, yeah. That's yeah. Wow. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>